Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. This episode is going to be a little different from ones we've done previously, and we're very excited about it. But before I kind of go into what we're going to be doing this go around, I'm going to hand it off to Fel, who will do our What Happened on This Day, and it is currently May 9th. So, Phil, go ahead. All right. So, what happened on this day? In 1893, the first motion picture exhibition was given in New York to an audience of 400 people at the Department of Physics using Thomas Alva Edison's kinetograph. An optical lantern projector showed me the images of a blacksmith and his two helpers passing a bottle and forging a piece of iron. Each film strip had 700 images, each being shown for about one ninety-second of a second. All right, so this episode, we actually have a guest with us today. We are going to be talking about epistemology, initiation, and ways of knowing. And we have asked for a good friend of ours, Ruby, from another server that we're on together to come on and talk about it with us. So Ruby, if you want to give yourself a brief introduction of what you do, um, what your interests are in the occult, your path, anything that you think is relevant, go for it. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for having me on here. This is extremely exciting because I really like this podcast. So yeah, I'm Ruby. I go by Morag on some Discord servers that I'm in, so you might know me through that. I'm a solitary Wiccan. I combine my practice with Reconstruction, uh, Gallic polytheism, and this forms a rather spicy pagan path of my own. I also practice Scottish folk magic and tradition. And yeah, I've been practicing for a couple of years now. I suppose we'll get more into what I've been doing and I'll give some discussion around that later in the episode. And I think the reason that I'm kind of in this episode today is because I am soon to be qualified as an occupational therapist, as in like potentially a couple of weeks, I'm not entirely sure. I have a real interest in qualitative research and this way of knowing that's a bit more subjective. Um, A lot of what I do in my real working life is to do with subjective experiences and understanding what it means to have a qualitative way of viewing the world. And I'm probably going to stutter a lot in this episode trying to pronounce qualitative and quantitative. So just bear with me with that. (laughs) Congratulations on almost becoming an occupational therapist and good luck moving forward. That's a great and exciting accomplishment. But yeah, so let's just go ahead and get started and ask the question that this episode was initially formed around, which was what the hell is epistemology and ontology and why exactly does it matter? Um, Morag, this is kind of your field. So if you want to start us off, go ahead. I think I would like to start off by saying that if by the end of this you still don't understand what ontology and epistemology is, that's okay. That means you're a normal human being. Um, They're kind of philosophical concepts. Um, I'm basing this description quite closely around this book called A Short Guide to Ontology and Epistemology or Why Everyone Should Be a Critical Realist by Tom Fryer because he explains it in very succinct ways. Basically, ontology is all about stuff. It looks at what stuff is and what it's like. It says what what is in the world, what is real, and what is reality. So it's that philosophical word where you're trying to answer that question. Epistemology kind of leads on from that. It comes from two Greek words meaning knowledge and study. Therefore, epistemology is the study of knowledge. And that asks questions like, how do I know the things that I know? Where does knowledge of this reality come from. If that makes sense, 
I'm really glad. If it doesn't, again, don't worry. That means you're normal. So I have a question. The the philosophical idea of kind of the chicken and the egg problem, is that something that you see a lot in epistemology with trying to figure out like how we know things? Generally, I view it as epistemology tends to come more from ontology because the only way that you can know about reality is if you understand kind of what reality is. But what gets quite messy is there's, you know, we kind of split ontology and epistemology into two camps. There's like real objective stuff and then there's like relative subjective stuff. And normally they kind of get divided into two camps, but actually they can be mixed up together and it can get really quite messy. And so you do get kind of end up in chicken and egg uh, situations. Generally, I, I try and just line it up in my head as epistemology comes from ontology and you have to kind of have your ontology lined up first before you can figure out what kind of epistemology you're doing. I found a diagram that I found that I thought was quite useful and it basically takes you through from ontology. So as Ruby mentioned, it's kind of what do you know? Epistemology is how we know it. And then that informs our methodology and our methods. So you can kind of see how this is really relevant to us as scientists or even as occultists, because we're thinking about the methods we use to understand the world, which is, again, informed by these two philosophical paradigms. So in the sciences, a really relevant dichotomy might be empiricism and rationalism. So that sciences are very obviously based on very empirical paradigms. Um, We're dependent on sensory information, things that we can sense, things that we can detect and measure and quantify. Whereas a more rationalist paradigm might assume that we can know something without that requirement for a sensory experience. We might rationally deduce it, we might know it kind of innately, intuit it. And you can kind of see how this informs kind of a more occult paradigm where you can't measure things empirically. Um, and so you have to know you have to know things through different mechanisms. Yeah, the the dichotomy between empiricism and rationalism within the scientific community has always been particularly fascinating to me. And ultimately, I think we learn the most when we find a balance between the two. Um, I don't really think anybody can deny that there are things that feel right or feel wrong or these these innate senses, um, your gut feeling, if you will, that people have about something. And in many cases, this is actually corroborated by biological or physiological phenomena. And that um, together shows how these two are synchronous in a way. Too much rationalism and you end up dismissing any kind of experiential information, which is absolutely valid. Don't ever forget about Isaac Newton observing the apple falling from the tree as the basis for the theory of, of gravitivity. That was uh, it was an experience, right? Watching the apple fall that then informed much of the rationalistic thought that followed. But also too much empiricism and we get lost in kind of the clouds of what is realistic. So I think the balance is really what is best for both, both the scientific and also occult practices. Too much in either side can be problematic. Ruby, I wondered if you wanted to touch on um, realism and rationalism as well, because this is kind of relevant in our discussion of epistemology um, and how, how we understand these two terms and how they're relevant in the occult. On the one hand, you've got realism or rationalism, positivism. They kind of, I know they do mean different things, but I'm kind of grouping them all together just because... That's how I remember them. And that's the very classical science point of view, right? It's, you know, when you've got modernism, that movement came about and they were like, we need to find an objective reality. And so that ontology proposes that there is one single objective reality. Um, It exists whether or not we are here to experience it. And therefore, the epistemology that comes from that is trying to measure that, trying to 
find out what that real reality is and not have our own like biases um, and things influencing us. And that's where the scientific method comes in, um, which you've discussed quite a lot in previous episodes and really, really lovely discussion in that. So, um, yeah, the other side of that is I'm saying that actually we cannot experience the world necessarily without having our biases and without having our own subjective experience of it. So that's where you've got relativism which is the other side. And that poses that rather than just one single reality, actually there are multiple subjective realities, um, multiple different ways of understanding the world relative to our own experiences. This is where things like social constructionism comes up, where you know we construct the realities by being in social circles. The way this was explained to me was thinking like the matrix. We can only see the world as our eyes perceive it as our ears hear it as as all these all this feedback comes in our brains process it and that is reality and if you're not getting any of that feedback if you're not getting any of that information then does reality exist with this argument no um so i think you can kind of see how both are useful in some ways but in other ways you know you can't you know it's not very good going in with a subjective epistemological view if you're trying to like measure the width of a chair for instance you know the chair is there you want it to be solid and you want to be able to sit on it so what are you getting if you're trying to like measure it with I think maybe that was a bad example but I tried to like pull one out of the air of my head and I had chairs floating around for some reason because I know that was another example used when I was getting taught about this but I think I butchered it it reminds me a bit of that, you know, that age old argument if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it does it still make a sound that's kind of, you know, a cliche statement, but I think it, it demonstrates, if I'm understanding it correctly, I think it's demonstrating sort of those two ideas to some degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually a much better analogy to explain it. You know, the, the realists would argue that, yes, it makes a sound because um, a machine could measure the sound waves and, and the particles juddering. Sorry to any like people who are really into sound physics. Clearly, I don't understand it. Whereas a relativist would go, mm, no, it doesn't really make a sound because no one's there to hear it. No one's there to experience the sound. So, you know, yes, particles might be moving, but it's not a sound because I, a human being with ears and a brain, cannot, you know, experience it. It's interesting to these paradigms because, like, as a scientist, I tend to fall more onto the realist side of things. Um, but also, I feel like in the occult community, things are very much so rel- like they're relative to the individual. So when it comes to kind of putting them together within our practices, like Candy, I don't know how you um, maybe fit them together in a way that is cohesive. I have kind of just eventually come to accept the fact that some things are relative and I don't have a way to measure them, which drives me up the wall bonkers because I would love to know and have an answer for everything. Um, but at the same time, I've always, it's brought up this thought of like, yes, everything is relative, but when it comes to something being empirically measurable, is it, is it not measurable simply because we just don't have the tools yet? Because in, in my mind, there, there almost is, there is a defined reality, but we just don't necessarily have the methods or the tools to actually measure all aspects of the reality. And so in that way it can seem kind of relative, even though ultimately it's not. This idea, and this this kind of comes from the idea where we we get so many stimuli every single day, and our brain can only process a select number of them, and that's what literally defines our reality. 
But just because we don't process all the other stimuli, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And it certainly doesn't mean that they can't be measured. We just aren't doing it like physiologically. And so in that regard, you could argue that it is defined. We just can't empirically measure it yet, which makes it relative. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? You have to think about, yes, you're processing those stimuli. So all those stimuli are real and measurable. Well, I say you say all of them. Um, at least lots of them are real and measurable. But the actual process of them being constructed and made understandable is done by your brain and it's done by your mind. So I guess that's the where the relativism comes in because all of those um, neurochemistry, the, your unique your neurochemistry, your um, cultural norms, your socialization, all of those things affect how you process it. So although they might be kind of more objective and empirical outside of you, you as a kind of little microcosm are processing things in an individual way. I'm not sure if that makes sense at all, <laughs> but I guess I can I can see there being an argument for actually experiential things being quite unique to the individual and relativism still being possible, even if your stimuli are kind of empirically validated. I think you could say that, yeah, like the the stimuli that you receive are empirical in the way that they theoretically could all be measured. But the way in which somebody interprets those, because we are raised in different cultures and traditions and so on and so forth, then it is relative to the individual specifically. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good point. I quite like to think of it like, let's take the concept of love. And, you know, you can say, can you measure love? And the pure realist uh, will say yes you can you can measure dopamine levels in the brain and you can create tools of measuring that brain chemistry and physiological reactions in the body but the relativist would come in and say but what what does that mean without the experience you know of, of you know using language to describe that feeling having the relationship with another person and having a history of memories with them all these things that really can you measure that? I think there's there's definitely an argument for yes, you can, and no, you can. There is there is kind of like a, a third paradigm, I suppose, of pragmatism, where it's like, oh, you should do both. Um, and I think that's what you were saying earlier, actually. But yeah, yeah, both both is good. It just really depends on what specifically you're you're looking at. I think if you're looking at certain types of data, certain types of methods are going to be more appropriate. You've got these two types of data methodologies and methods that come from relativism and realism, and that's qualitative and quantitative. Quantitative is your science, right? It's it's to quantify, it's realist, it's about measuring that objective singular reality. My penchant is for qualitative stuff, and that's about looking at what is the quality of that reality. It seeks to understand what are these subjective realities that people are experiencing. So in occupational therapy, we use both quantitative and qualitative tools to assess people, right? So you're trying to do research and you're saying, what is the efficacy of an intervention? Quantitative might look and say, oh, limb function improved after this intervention was used. And that would be you know, measuring, like say, okay, the limb function was this and now it's better. Quantitatively, it has worked. Qualitatively, you may look at how do you feel now compared to before? You know, what, how is your mental health improved? And it's really hard to measure things like mental health improvement with, you know, you can use scales and stuff, and that's the pragmatist view where it's kind of in between. But yeah, you wouldn't really go in trying to measure brain chemistry to see if an intervention in occupational therapy has worked. Um, I think that would be a bit invasive and silly. <laughs> Rather than just asking someone, hey, how do you feel now? What's better? What's worse? What, what, 
was your experience getting this intervention? And then if they're like, yeah, it was really good. I feel so much better. And then you're like, okay, qualitatively, it worked. Yeah. Can I, I just want to kind of butt in with a question really quickly. But so one of the issues that we I see, especially in my own laboratory with the qualitative observations that we make with some of our data is people often you know, throw in, well, like you, you are, you were biased when viewing your data, you've read into what you're seeing and so on and so forth. So when it comes to like a, a survey, that would be a qualitative measure of, of gaining feedback from participants. Would something like the placebo effect have a role there? I think this is why one, maybe why it's both, it's important to get both, right? Because if you just got the qualitative data, it's entirely possible, depending upon the kind of study that you're doing, that the effect these people are seeing is primarily placebo, right? They, they, this, this thing happened and they felt a result, but it was because they were being treated or not treated if you have a control, which is really where that's a little bit more relevant. If you also had the quantitative data to corroborate the qualitative, then you kind of have the best of both worlds. Um, that's, that's where I think really like both is, it's important to have both um, because that way you kind of rule out the possibility of this just being something that happened because somebody thought they were being treated or maybe the results were better than they expected because that's what they expected. You know, you just, does what I'm saying make sense? I can't tell. No, it absolutely does. And do you know what? That is quite a, a, it's a contentious issue that does come up in discussions of interventions and, you know, research, uh, especially in the social sciences. I think when it comes to things like placebo, it's very much about, that's taking a very realist point of view where, you know, your say medication. I don't think medication should be looked at qualitatively because that's not going to give you the answer that you're really needing, right? You want to know, does this drug have the desired effect on this thing in the body, right? And I think you need to go in looking for placebos there because, because you're wanting to know, like, is this actual treatment the thing that's helping here? Whereas when you've got things like therapies, there's a lot of stuff where, you know, arguably it's just the presence of a therapist that's, you know, helping someone. For a lot of people, it's just having someone in the room and listening to them talk. That's the thing. It may not even necessarily be these interventions. And the qualitative researcher says, well, let's embrace that aspect of it. Let's embrace the fact that you need another person there to have the desired effect you know maybe it is placebo maybe it is I think you see that a lot actually with homeopathy where people say well you know maybe it is placebo that's giving you the the feeling of, of wellness after you know having crystals on your forehead and stuff I've never had homeopathy can you tell <laughs> that's kind of where occupational therapy gets interesting for me because there's kind of an embracing of both the qualitative I'm a therapist in the room with you and I'm giving you my time and attention to uh, create some kind of socially constructed experience here that's helping you but also I'm trying to use some sound well-researched interventions that are proven in some way to have a good effect or have some or to give you a better occupational experience does that answer your question <laughs> yeah yeah I just wanted to also butt in a little bit and say I think qualitative um, information it tends to give you a, a greater breadth of information so about the for example in the therapy example you know more about the experience of the patient you might learn more about what's happening in the therapy than if you simply took a a single metric and say okay do you feel better yes or no you're learning a little bit more about what their experience is like what they learned what they garnered from that um, and obviously we're going to think about these methods in an occult context well that's really important because it's more about do we get a result yes or no it's about 
how it affects our experience, what we understand from that, how it helps us to relate to other people or to the divine. It just gives you a lot more nuance, I guess. So um, I think definitely there's a place for qualitative research methods. Um, I also wanted to ask, Val, because I know that you did a degree that was kind of in between sciences and arts. Yes, and I think I maybe it, I was curious to know what um, kind of methods you used during that. Yeah, so new media, which was my degree, and I've talked about it before. Basically, it's like think graphic design, YouTube, that intersection of like old media, like painting, and newer media, like programming or even bio art, which is really fun. <laughs> but one of the interesting things with new media was, you know, there are certain things that are obviously very relative. You know, art is subjective. However, if I'm working in programming and I'm doing a an interactive piece that requires literal programming, it's going to have to be a bit of both. I can't just say to the computer, well, I want this to happen or not even want this to happen, but it's like I have to have like a, well, this code is literally going to, you know, run exactly what I enter it in. So that's where math comes in because you have to know a little bit about uh, mathematical theory in order to program. So there's an interesting intersection where like I'm trying to generate snow. Generating snow is so annoying. <laughs> If you're doing programming from like, there are obviously like auto generators for that now, but they made us do all the brunt work. And, you know, I'm trying to do this nice winter scene, but before I can even create this nice winter th scene, I have to understand the mathematical theory that will generate this snow and actually work. Because computers, they are the definition of a realist. They can't even be a realist. They're just literal. They're they if they mess up, it's not the computer's problem. It's your problem because <laughs> they take what you said to the T. So uh, that's very interesting for me because when I would do art or like bio art, for example, which I didn't get to do a lot of chance to do, but like bio art, you're working with chemicals or you're working with cells, and you have to have a basis quantitative research in order to then move these things into a subjective artistic field well it was like kenny when you did our, our ttac play on yeah. the instagram right like there had there's like a quantitative you know when when you're doing it you need a specific type of agar a specific type of nutrients um the specific cell line that we were using but like then we took that and it was like we made it into art kind of like you were saying yeah fell like you need to have the quantitative understanding to make something a little more quantitative or artistic so yeah how how might we use these two research methods in the occult i think really you had an example that you wanted to bring up I don't know if I can really speak so much on using quantitative ways of knowing in the occult. I know in the past you've talked about like testing spells uh, and, you know, having really neat records and everything of all the stuff that you did. And that's definitely a more quantitative method. But I, I had this thought of, I, I don't really know anything about Thelema, but let's say I want to, I want to understand it. I want to know it better. I can't really um, quantify the lemma to understand it better. I mean, I could definitely try, but I don't think I'd get very far. So I, I think, okay, I want to understand the lemma. I, I'm going to use a relativist, subjective, socially constructed way of understanding it, right? There's um, lots of different methods in qualitative research. One of the main ones is phenomenology. This kind of emerged from philosophy and it, it seeks to understand the lived reality of a person for understanding what is the phenomena as the person experiences. 
it's really complicated and messy and weird and I don't actually think anybody gets it. I think they're all just pretending. But the way that might look would be asking a thalamite in some kind of interview to describe their experience. You know, what is thalema to you? How, what is that like? What does it mean to be a thalamite? Another similar one is grounded theory and that kind of emerged more from sociology. And that's where you collect data to build a hypothesis. The data can come from many sources, so that could be interviews, but also diaries, past research, and you're using it all and comparing it all to create a theory to explain the phenomenon that you're studying. So that could look like asking several thalamites from all different parts of the world, what's your experience of thalema? And then comparing it with literature. So I would read the Book of the Law and a bunch of stuff by Alistair Crowley and other thalamites that have written books. And from all this, I, I build a theory, okay, this is what I think thalema is about. Ethnography is one that I find really cool and it comes up quite a lot in I think pagan spaces especially and that's basically asking what's going on with this group of people to find out I will immerse myself and become one with them so that was I think with the lima that would look like me attending open rituals and it would be me attending different groups where thalamites are converging and I'm basically trying to not fully become a thalamite but experience Thalema with them and alongside them as part of the group. Ethnography is really cool, I think. There's a lot of it. There's, uh, it's a, there's a really shaky history with it and a lot of issues with colonialism, which I won't get into. But just to have that in mind that you know there, there's there's issues with it, which make it interesting when you're reading ethnographic research because you've got to kind of bear that in mind. Like who is the researcher in this? Ethnography kind of aims to cover that. But that's a brief summary of some ways of doing qualitative research. Also how it could apply to the occult if you're interested. And now you know lots of ways to understand uh, Thelema if that's your interest. So uh, go for it. <laughs> the discussion of this is really interesting because I'm beginning to realize that much of the research that I do is it's very falls within the grounded theory realm of things, like studying Enochian magic. So obviously we had the journals of Dr. John Dee and then where he recorded all of his experiences in addition to there's some like interviews and some books that have some like biographies that have been written on him. And that collectively together is very much the grounded theory kind of um, qualitative research. And I also see that with my study of alchemy. I have like lab notebooks and well I don't know if they were called lab notebooks back then but the uh, the data that that alchemist collected you know from from so long ago and then all of these handbooks that have kind of been written and guidebooks to help you um, understand alchemical concepts and apply that like uh, to the actual material world and I give us again like it's that data that could that quantified data in addition to the experiences that many alchemists had and I think it's interesting because it's when you think about the separation of alchemy and chemistry, really what the biggest difference is that chemistry is simply the science separated from kind of the spiritual experience. Like alchemy combined both. Um, they did the the chemistry, but they also incorporated the spiritual into it. And it's those experiences that that like inner transformation that was amplified on the the like physical realm um, put together that made alchemy. And once you remove that, it just became science. It became chemistry by itself. That was that was very interesting to make those connections. It's interesting because I would argue that like a lot of like Hellenism, for example, probably a lot of Reconstructionism in general is grounded theory because a lot of Reconstructionists, at least in you know Hellenic circles, they look at, you know, votive offerings that are buried underneath the temple or they look at historiographers at that time, their account of what is going on. So that's interesting. <laughs> I would be interested to see if the intersection of, you know, grounded theory and archaeology, if there is a hard line or, um, you know, all, all of 
those kinds of things. Yeah, we, we read a lot of ethnographies in my classes and they were always super fascinating. <laughs> like, yeah, we had some we had some really interesting things that we read. Obviously, ethnography would not be possible. <laughs> with classical Hellenism because that's just not possible but it would be I mean, how people do that like they're like Margot Adler I would argue that her book Drawing Down the Moon is an ethnography because she went and attended hand-fasted rituals and she went to all these different parts of North America and different pagan groups and really immersed herself in them and like lived with them and attended all these festivals so in many ways, I actually think the practice of ethnography would be really useful for many pagans because I know I have um, a couple of friends who, one in particular I'm thinking of at the moment, um, who did their doctorate dissertation um, about indigenous culture. And part of that was spirituality. And so they actually went and lived with tribes that welcomed them into the fold. And it's so interesting to see the perspective that they presented of their spiritual practices versus the the point of view that many people read about. And it was incredibly different. And I remember sitting there and thinking like, we have a very skewed perception of what their spirituality is. And granted, this was a very particular tribe. So it'll obviously be different um, for different groups of people. But I was I was shocked kind of by the misrepresentation that they've had within kind of non-Indigenous spiritual like spaces. And people just have a complete misunderstanding of those practices. And it's like, before anyone speaks on a particular practice that I don't think they're well-versed in, I think like going and living with and immersing themselves in that culture would be a fantastic way of really getting a good understanding of like what they're really about. Is lurking on Discord a form of ethnography? Yes, 100%. I wrote a, a server that's specific for like Eastern traditions because my grandfather is actually from India. Um, and so I do have like some root in Hinduism and in practices in India. And I do kind of like lurk there <laughs> to immerse myself in like the Asian and the Eastern traditions to try and get a grasp of like what they actually think of their culture and the, the spiritual traditions that they practice. It's been very enlightening. I learned a lot. So I have a question for you all if we're finished um, So what can the occult be quantified and should it be? So I think that there are things that can be quantified, but it, it kind of it applies to very strict materialist things. So herbalism, um, you might be able to find like a chemical basis for plant correspondences. You might be able to quantify how many species are in a particular area. I think that's kind of a fun sort of intersection of ecology and um, the occult. But so many things are sort of codified in an experiential way or a very cultural way. So I think it's it limits things to view them through this very, very strict empirical lens. But I'm just curious what you guys think, whether you can actually understand the occult in a quantifiable way. I think you're right. And I think there's definitely aspects of occultism, magic and spirituality that, that can be quantified. You can count them and see them and, and say, OK, this will exist whether or not I'm here to, to see it and, and experience it. But ultimately, for me, it's it's a very qualitative world. It's, it's experiential and subjective. I think it's quite interesting how occult traditions, when you think about it, they, they're built by people. They, they didn't exist without communities to create them and build them. You can't have a ritual without someone to write it and without someone to think of the, the liturgy and without someone to test it out and say, oh my gosh, I had an experience with, with a deity. And then, you know, that's I think that's the thing as well. You can't prove or disprove the existence of, of God or the divine. You can't prove or disprove the existence of spirits. You can't prove or disprove the presence of energy in the metaphysical sense, right? Obviously, energy exists uh, in a physics term, but 
when we talk about energy in in the spiritual occult world, it's it's very different. We're using the same word, but it's a very different thing that we're describing. Two people in one ritual might have very different experiences, and I suppose if you're going by a quantitative way, you're you're basically asking, is one of those real and one of them isn't? Is one are they both not real? But if you're saying no, they they are both real and they are both valid, then that's that's uh, acknowledging the subjectivity of it. So. That's kind of how I view the occult and spiritual world as a whole. It's qualitative. I think it's both. Um, there, I think there are some aspects that are much more easily quantifiable than others. For instance, I think actually many folk practices are more quantifiable than maybe like ceremonial practices simply because you work with things like herbs and you're making tinctures. And like herbalism, in my opinion, is much more quantitative practice because you can approach it very scientifically and and methodically and then when you're looking at like what kind of tincture to create to to treat something you're obviously looking at the physiology um, of the person and also the characteristics of the herbs and all of that's coming in kind of full circle to create this this um like homeopathic remedy but in the ceremonial room especially i think the occult is very qualitative and it's almost impossible to quantify because trust me i have tried i that was one of my biggest the biggest difficulties moving from folk to the ceremonial side of my practice was that I I was almost so desperate to quantify my experiences and like what I was experiencing and and seeing as a result of things that I had done. When it was just like, but I don't have an explanation for it. And it still, again, drives me crazy. (laughs) I've had, there needs to be an explanation. And it's always in the back of my mind that it's possible that there is an explanation. I just don't have a way to measure it. And that's kind of where I've landed. Um, But in that sense, many of my experiences within the ceremonial side of things are very qualitative. And I don't really have a way to measure them other than like what I've personally experienced and been noted down. Um, I think I think astrology, and I bring this up because it's a very specific example that that I thought of, is interesting because in some ways, it is quantitative because it's based on the exact positions of the planets. And this also kind of influences planetary magic. So the positions of the planets, their degrees, um, where they are at a given time, that's all very quantitative. It's, it's studied by astronomers and they can they can provide us that information. But it's interesting when you take that and you put it into the occult and the interpretation becomes much more qualitative. So when we look at like somebody's birth chart, for example, the degrees and the placements of the planets at a particular time, that's all quantitative information that we can measure and we can empirically measure. But when it comes to applying that to the individual and how it might affect their lives, that in and of itself is a much more qualitative practice. Um, and so again, I think it's a great example of one of those things where like astronomy and astrology like separated, but they, it has both quantitative and qualitative aspects. And so it's kind of those those examples, like astrology and, and alchemy, that kind of combine the two for me. Like, I do think they both have a place within the occult. And I think it also depends on where you land in terms of folk practitioner, ceremonial practitioner, but both your research will tend or your experience will tend toward one side or the other. When you're talking about them being both together and the relationship to herbalism, folk magic, that just that got me thinking about uh, some plants. And actually, I think that's a really, really good point because... You've got some herbs, right? And, and they do have objective properties and they can have, they have certain chemical makeups that have physiological effects, right? Uh, I won't go on about this too much because I know you just did a two-part episode on this, but um, I've been reading about St. John's Wort and Yarrow, they're two of my favourite herbs. They have empirical effects on the body. St. John's Wort, for example, uh, is a mood lifter, but that 
in a way, there's a relationship between that and the qualitative folk tales and folk beliefs about that. For instance, St. John's Wort's supposed to chase away the devil and it's supposed to keep evil away. Yarrow's very similar. It's it's a cer- It can improve circulation, but it's also really heavily associated with love and good marriage. And you think about good circulation, getting, getting your blood flowing and everything. Okay, is that going to link to love in some way? And there's other things. It's, it's a really good antiseptic and anti-inflammatory, and it's got associations of giving you courage and warding away danger if you wear it on you. So I think that's just a really lovely link between the quantitative and qualitative worlds in an occult magic spiritual sphere so i'm really glad you brought that up yeah i mean i honestly don't have have much to add to that i mean i think that's that's very very true and i mean we touched upon this a lot in our herbalism episodes and specifically like i talked about how i i have seen someone who practices chinese medicine for example and i think that too can walk the line between qualitative and quantitative god i hate those words <laughs> trying to there's too many t's and striking a balance between the two i definitely think it's seen a lot in remedies and even in some ways in western medicine where there there are certain things you know i mean that's why placebos are studied because i think there there can be an element of quality versus something that is qualified versus something that's like quantified i can't really think of any other form of the occult really besides the the mentions of like planetary magic astrology and folk medicine that really strike a balance between the two because a lot of it is just so like you know especially like deity stuff like that's all that's all like qualitative yeah so i think the next thing we're gonna talk about is kind of the do we use qualitative research methods in our research and in our practice I try not to use qualitative information in my practice just because, again, like I like to have a, a sl- like a solid yes or no. And it's funny, and if I had my my grimoire nearby, I would show you. But um, it's very much so set up like a like a lab notebook. So every ritual has an intended purpose. I have the materials. I have kind of the setup, and then the actual ritual, and then I have like observations and notes and so on and so forth. And so in that regard. That's my, uh, to be quantitative, but quite frankly, especially recently, much of my research is, or my practice, sorry, is qualitative um, and it's very experiential and it's, it's become more qualitative as time has gone on just because what I'm doing now is so difficult to, to quantify. It's something that I just can't, <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> Unfortunately, the, the angels and stuff that I work with won't bend to my will or anything. So they don't usually give me hardcore data, you could say. So yeah, I mean, it's very much so most of my practice now is based on feeling interaction um, and just overall experience rather than any kind of like legitimate data that I'm receiving. So the only quantitative part is where the planets are at any given time, because that influenced kind of when I do things. Things. But yeah, that's really where I'm at in my practice. It's very much so qualitative and experiential um, at the moment, which I both love and hate. I think for me, it is really important to actually write it down so I can track it though. Like even if it is qualitative data gathering, it, the data gathering part, so I can actually look back and see, okay, how did this affect me? How did, you know, how did this work out? That's still quite an important aspect. Um, I don't know if other people are a little bit more freeform, but um, I would say actually understanding how things evolve over time is still um, very relevant to my own practice. Yeah, actually, that's that's really important to bring up because just because qualitative research doesn't rely on numbers and it's not the same kind of data doesn't mean that documentation 
and effective, good documentation isn't just as important. So I recently did a project which involved interviewing some people to, to get their experiences. And part of that involved recording the interviews and then transcribing all of it <laughs> and then reading through it again and again and again. And from that, pulling out certain words, certain themes, certain things that were similar, some things that were different, mashing that together and seeing what are the core messages and meanings that are coming out of it, which is, it's difficult, but it's rewarding. But that kind of demonstrates the importance of writing and documentation. So I think even if you're using more qualitative ways of viewing the occult, um, your magic, good documentation is going to be important regardless. It, you know, and being able to look back and say, okay, this was my experience then, what is, what is different now? A lot of the books we read, I would argue, are qualitative data gathering because they're all from people's, they're records of people's experiences of magic. A book about Wiccan covens is attempting to convey the experience of working in this tradition. A book about crystals, it doesn't convey measurable data about the stones. Not Well, it might, but not necessarily. Rather, what is the qualitative experience that many magicians have had with using them in certain ways? And... A book of folklore is a collection of a culture's experience of reality, their stories, their um, spirits, their, their religion. As you say, some authors might use quantitative methods to measure, say, the efficacy of a spell. I don't think for me that would work so well, because I think I'd be focusing so closely on, like, is it working? What are all my controls and everything? That I'd actually be too worried for it to effectively work. I think I rely a lot on faith, uh, and maybe that's not super sound magic but the result is that it's 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 effective for me at work so um yeah <laughs> I, I find it really interesting the way that you guys work in that way I just I think it would break me <laughs> um, I actually thought it was really interesting what you were saying about um how you process um qualitative data and how you sort of read through and sit with the text of um of an interview um, and kind of process that because it reminded me of how I've heard somebody describe a kind of mystical reading practice so they might do that a Christian mystic for example was describing earlier today how they might sit and meditate and reflect on a bible passage for example and I guess it just made me think that actually reading itself as you mentioned it can be a qualitative research method and it can be magical in itself it's quite different to our idea of an experiential experiential experience <laughs> what do I mean but yeah it's quite it's quite different to that but it's still closer to a kind of magical practice than just simply reading and collecting data. I think there's a difference between reading to gather information and also reading to enjoy the beauty of something, right? Because a lot of like older occult books specifically um, are written in such a way that, that the information is portrayed very beautifully. And so when you read it, not only are you collecting the information, but you're also feelings are being evoked from, from the way it was written specifically, which is in and of itself a kind of art form. And so, yes, I do think that I agree with you, Henny, and I think you bring up a good point that reading, it's, it's again, a combination kind of, there can be a qualitative aspect to that in addition to a quantitative, or it can be more qualitative depending upon um, the subject that you're actually researching. It comes back to that distinction between, say, grounded theory and ethnography. I'm just spitballing here. I suppose reading would be kind of the grounded theory approach, right? Because you're trying to make sense and make theories from other people's experiences as they've been documented. You know, a, a, an occult book is detailing this, you know, someone's experience that they've had, and you're trying to make sense of that. But ultimately, what a lot of qualitative research acknowledges is that you can't ever truly know 
um, what someone else's reality is. You can only try and get close using um, the language that you have, using the the relative comparisons that you have. Um, and so I think when it comes down to uh, magical practice, you need to have an element of your own experiences and your own knowing. So I wonder what you guys think of that. Um, what What is the importance of, of your own experiences in that regard? For me, I was literally just thinking about this the other day. So I was recently just wanted to look into worshiping and working with some lesser known deities, specifically like Hyacinth or Hyacinthos um, and Brito Martis. And I was like really struggling because I was like really intrigued by their stories. And there was just so little information. And I, when I work with or, or worship deities or, or engage in a practice, I love to do like deep dives, like grounded theory, like learn everything I can. I'm not like, I don't remember if I brought this up on this podcast yet, but I brought it up other places. Like I don't consider myself a reconstructionist. Um, I am more go with the term revivalist because, you know, I do a lot of like very weird practices that I uh, sort of syncretize in myself. But when it comes to entities and deities specifically, I tend to work a lot with that sort of qualitative historical basis. And so I was like, I really want to work with these guys. You know, they didn't have a cult or if they did, all, a lot of their stuff was mis- like mystery traditions, which, you know, obviously lost to time. Or it's just like they're mentioned here, here, and here, and in this poem, and that's it. And like there's no evidence of any worship at all. Or like there's only mentions of mentions of a mention of a worship. So I was talking to some, you know, Hellenic polytheists earlier today about how to go about this. And they said that a lot of it was, you know, that that personal knowing and really doing a deep dive on yourself because since you can't do an external deep dive. So things like divination, praying, offerings, trance work, meditation. And that was really hard for me because I tend to go like really deep. So it's interesting to, to try to go on this intangible experience in order to potentially build up a relationship i suppose it's about trying to acknowledge that we don't live in the past anymore we don't live in the same time as these people they're they are gone um but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't bring bring them into the present day Uh, i quite like that traditions do change and evolve and we kind of do need to create our own um as i said i kind of feel like they're constructed by the people that do them it does make pure reconstruction and, and uh emulating the past so much harder but yeah i want to throw in ronald hutton real fast he's great um he has a really nice way of viewing sort of modern paganism and witchcraft as this flexible thing where you're you are working to be accurate and close and respectful for for the history and what it meant but actually trying to embrace and enjoy the modern stuff that's all mixed in with that and you know i i work with <laughs> i work with a very scottish framework um which is hard in some ways on the pagan side because there's very little going on in Scotland <laughs> record-wise. Um, a lot more Irish stuff, uh, which you kind of have to bring in. Um, but I'm also a Wiccan, so that's a very, very modern religion. And you kind of have to just have to smush them together. <laughs> and I don't know. I had my own internal conflicts about that for a while, but then just said, ah, screw it. <laughs> this is fun. I think that was a slight tangent, but it was a fun one. So there you go. Actually, no, that means 
pretty perfectly into kind of the next topic, which is which is experiential knowing. I think it's funny because <laughs> I know within the occult, like at least in my experience, it's it's very common to hear people say, you know, if I told anyone about this, they think I'm crazy. And I have this thought a lot, um, especially recently, since things have become more experiential. There are spiritual experiences we have that are just simply impossible to describe using the language that we have available to us. And you just, it's some, these things just have to be experienced to be believed, which makes it pretty much impossible to quantify. And the only, really the closest you can get to any kind of quantification is having your personal gnosis become verified gnosis through other practitioners. And that's kind of what I've found a lot through through planetary magic, especially. In planetary magic, each planet has an intelligence and a spirit, sometimes multiple, depending on what you're looking at. And there's very little written about the distinction between the intelligences and the spirits. The general accepted theory is that the intelligence like, represent kind of the benefic side of the planet, and the spirits represent the malefic um, characteristics or side of the planet. But quite honestly, like in my own practice, the best way that I've come to know their their energies has been through meditation and working with them. And what I've experienced, thankfully, has been very similar to other planetary magic practitioners that I um, engage with outside of our Discord servers, just to like corroborate and be like, okay, this is what I experienced. Have you experienced something similar? Please tell me I'm not crazy. And like with the Nokian, it's been very similar with that, um, with like specific angels that I work with. It's like, okay, I got this like vibe from this dude. Did you get the same thing? <laughs> so yeah, I think experimental knowing is very important. And it's nice when it is verified by other practitioners. But I do want to say that it's not a bad thing if it's not verified. Like you can have unverified personal gnosis based on your personal experience. And that's still equally as valid. But I know personally, it's nice to get some kind of like corroboration that yeah, like what you're experiencing is is something that many people have also encountered. You know, to be honest, I think books and um, even qualitative research that is um, kind of quite in-depth can only take you so far. I guess I'll bring herbalism up as an example, because although we've referred to it as quite paradigm that's quite easy to quantify, the spiritual side of that is still very, very much grounded in experiential knowing. Um, you can take a herb and physically feel a very different experience to somebody else. Knowing the spirit of that plant is so it's quite an intimate connection. It's something that only you are really going to be able to experience. The trance work, the visions that you see, the dreams that you have, if you take a mugwort tea, for example, it's all going to be very unique and it's going to build your experience in a unique way. So yes, I think it's useful to look at correspondences and things and look at other people's experience to know what to expect. But ultimately it is, it's your practice and it's your experience and you can't discount the actual doing. Here's an interesting quote that I was reading today. It's from an essay in a journal. It's called Devotionalism, Material Culture, and the Personal in Greek Religion. And I thought this was a very interesting quote. It says, as votives and offerings provided ancient Greeks with a way to mark a relationship with special powers, but also served a means for expressing narratives about that experience. Archaeology and inscriptions reveal the individual's power and agency in making religious worlds, as well as the importance of versatility of narrative in these efforts. Narrative provided individuals with a place to play a leading role in the telling of their own religious story and understanding of the divine. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I don't know. That just really, I really like that quote. I liked the idea of becoming a leading role in telling your own religious story and also the making of a religious world and how even if it appears to be connected to the public, ultimately a lot of that narrative happens in the private between you and the divine. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so cool. I really like yeah. it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think this is another one of those reasons why sometimes, and I think we'll do an episode on this later. It's been on my mind. I haven't added it to the episode outline, but I will later. So talking about kind of the importance of secrecy within your own practice because it's good to talk to other practitioners and like see what they what they experience as well. But there are certain things like in my practice that are very, I haven't spoken to others about and I probably never will, but like it has very strong correspondences like to me and what I do. And that will never change. Um, and in some ways, there are some things like that, that I think should be kept quiet. And also like one of those things where if you have a correspondence that you, based on experience, completely disagree with any kind of like written correspondence, that is totally valid. Um, please don't think that you need to throw throw that away and accept what most people are saying to you. Um, but it might just be one of those things you keep close to yourself. And that's just like a very personal like gnosis that you don't necessarily feel the need to share. And you just use it that way because that's how it feels to you. Um, that That's super valid. And I, I think sometimes we maybe jump on people a little too frequently for having correspondences that differ from what's widely accepted, even though we always say that it's so individualized. And it's like, there needs to be a balance between like, yes, this is what's commonly accepted, but like also what you're experiencing is totally legitimate. And if that's what you would use as personal gnosis, that's like valid, please keep doing it. Um, so you brought up secrecy, and I think that's a really good jumping off point for talking about initiatory traditions, um, because like in a way you can think of it as a very extreme form of secrecy. Um, so it's in a to start us off with what is initiation um, and why Why does it happen? What, why do these traditions exist in the occult? Yeah, Maura, you're the Wiccan here, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a real Wiccan, I'm not in a coven. No, I'm, I'm a real Wiccan. That's, that's a whole other discourse for another day. <laughs> but no, I'm not part of a traditional Wiccan coven, but traditional Wicca is initiatory. Initiation was is kind of the way it's modernly understood was developed on the 20th century. Uh, I'm in particular thinking about uh, an anthropologist called Arnold van Gennep, uh, who was an ethnographer, and he developed this theory through ethnography. So very relevant. I think it was in some it was in an African community that he sort of came up with a lot of this. But um, there was a lot of stuff going on. He argues that initiation has three stages: separation, transition, and incorporation. Uh, there's stuff about liminality there too, which I had to mention because I love everything that has the word liminal in it, um, but I digress. Um, the process of initiation is basically you're becoming an insider from being an outsider. So with regards to covens, that's you going from being an outsider to the coven to becoming inside. You're a fully-fledged coven member, and with that you gain responsibilities and privileges, such as knowledge. So the knowledge that covens hold, it comes from a lineage of initiates. Um, it's how the tradition is built up. It, it's socially constructed. What happens is you've got an initiate coming in. They gain that secret knowledge that's kept within the coven. Um, but then from that, when they, they work their way through the coven, they have these new experiences. And thus they develop new knowledge that combines together. And that gets passed down to the next line of initiates. So I, I think that's just a really cool example of how there's this experiential way of knowing that's really socially constructed. And this is kind of how traditions are built and evolve. And it's the difference between qualitative knowing and quantitative knowing, I think. It's that aspect of change. Um, you know, physics doesn't change, no matter who's looking at it. If you're, do, if you're measuring it correctly, it will stay the same. It'll always be that way. Um, I'm sure a quantum physicist is going to get on my back in a moment and be like, no, that's not true, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> Chemistry doesn't change, think. 
you can correct me if I'm wrong there. It's the actual facts of it remain the same. The reality of it stays the same. But traditions, communities, and that knowledge and that reality, that changes. And I think that's what makes it a really qualitative world. So fundamentally, why are initiatory traditions initiatory? Like, why are they kept secret? A couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons that really grabs my attention is there's magic in secrets. There's, there's, there, you kind of get, a, I think we've all experienced it. You get a buzz out of um, not telling someone something or, you know, when a friend tells you like, oh, don't let anyone know about this, but I heard from this person, like, you know, and, and you've got to keep it a secret. And I think there's magic in that. There's something very, I think it also can define the group in a way. It keeps that initiation aspect. Um, it keeps it special. It keeps it sacred. You know, it's all very well if you want to go out and say to everyone, yeah, I'm a Wiccan and this is what we did and this is what how we do everything and how we work. And I think this was a lot of the critique about Gardner at the time where a lot of people were like, hey, should, should he really be sharing all of this? Because it was something sacred and only for the people who had been initiated in. It, it helps draw that line between the outsider and the insider. And it shows an element of trust as well. If you can be trusted with that secret, then... That means you're trusted with all the aspects of the coven and you're trusted not to harm people within the group and have everyone's best interests at heart and be close together. I think there's probably a lot more reasons to it than that. I kind of wish I'd done a little bit more reading of uh, Thorne Mooney's book, Traditional Wicca, which is where I've done a lot of my reading and research for this little segment. But um, I, I wish I'd read a bit more on the bit about secrecy now. <laughs> In the Hermetic tradition specifically, there is a lot that stems around kind of the secrecy and this secret knowledge that you'll get upon initiation to a tradition. Um, and it's something that I really look forward to when I do decide to take that step. But I do think that um, initiations are also important because even if you have the knowledge outside, there is something that you gain from being a part of a tradition. Some this the secret, I guess you could say, this this extra understanding that takes the knowledge to an entirely different level. And truly, I think that's where transformation really begins. And that knowledge becomes transformative in ways that someone outside will never understand. And I think that's kind of why sometimes these these traditions do close themselves off to outsiders because like that experience is so special. It's so sacred to the tradition itself that it, that it needs to be protected. And I think that's really valuable. And I, I definitely like personally long for that experience um, in the future when it does happen. I mean, yeah, doesn't the word occult in general mean to keep hidden or to obscure? And I remember when I was like starting to get reach beyond the beginner stages, I was kind of like, where are all of these like, like, you know, Thorne Mooney has that video of like where are all the advanced witchcraft books and there was a period of time where I was just longing for that and then I sort of settled into my own of realizing that a lot of the at least for my own journey a lot of it becomes much more hidden much much quieter and there's something in that that is far more sacred than I experienced when I was a beginner practitioner. I think it's the transition from doing magic for material game, material gain, or like the the aesthetic of of magic, and really utilizing it for inner transformation and true change um, in your life, and like utilizing your spiritual practice to help you be a better person, whether that's be reaching enlightenment, you know, whatever that might look for for you as an individual. Um, that's something what I've experienced in my practice is I, I quickly moved away from the folk practitioner side of things because I just, it felt very shallow. And I was like, I yearn for more, like there's more here and I don't know what it is. And I want 
have a deeper understanding. And that's, I think, when I realized that the deeper understanding comes from experience. And so that's when the biggest transition in my practice happened. And I began to realize, you know, okay, a lot of this is going to be experiential. And I became a much more quiet about my practice and kept things a little more close to to myself because they are so personal. And I think um, also there's an element, at least in initiatory orders, where it's not just your own experience, but it's the experience of the entire group. And um, Ruby, I think you alluded to this, but the idea of something evolving with a lineage and you developing new experiences together, that can only really be experienced with a group of people. And so your group's cultural norms are also going to affect the way that you experience that gnosis, which is quite, I think, special and unique and can't really be seen anywhere else. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Nothing that I've experienced myself, but um, I'm very, very curious about it. I'm kind of sad that like group rituals are becoming less of a thing because I would really love, like I'm a solitary practitioner, but I would love to go out and like, have larger group rituals with just even other other pagans. You don't even need to go into an initiated like practice. Um, just experience like what a collective ritual would be like because I'm sure the energy is very different and I would just I would love to experience that one day maybe we all need to get together and do a ritual <laughs> oh my goodness that'd be so chaotic <laughs> and all the different traditions melded together would be a beautiful mess <laughs> you mentioned something about becoming more secretive and that got me thinking about um so fun fact I used to be an armchair colorist <laughs> and I started thinking about as I got out of the armchair and started doing more practices I actually got a lot more secretive and maybe that's something to do with the, there's more things to be secretive about but I'm not entirely sure you know there, I think there's an element of that but certainly I used to be comfortable sharing pictures of my altar and I, I can't do it anymore I can't take pictures of it so uh, I can maybe talk a little bit about the armchair as as it relates to experiential knowing because I, I did a lot of reading. I, I did, you know, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of um, social media stuff, and subsequently I did a lot of talking. But I wasn't really relaying my own experiences. Um, I was talking about things I read. You know, I could answer questions really well uh, because I'd read answers somewhere else in the book, um, and that was fine. Except it wasn't because when I eventually realized oh my gosh this this isn't good I'm, I'm just I'm showing off basically but not actually doing anything you know I'm all talk I did force myself out of the chair I started doing daily practices I started doing weekly rituals and everything like that my eyes were honestly open to completely new ways of knowing and understanding um, magic and divinity and yeah as I mentioned the qualitative research postulates that we can never truly know what other people know we can get close to their reality, but we'll never really get it. And so, yeah, with that said, we, we need to ex have our own experiences. Um, arguably, that's why there's very few advanced books on uh, witchcraft, for example, because so much of being an occultist and, and uh, learning on these paths is about doing. And once you've got past the beginner stages and you've developed a regular practice for yourself, you're going to have these really personal experiences that really cannot be translated super well to to other people. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that there's not many advanced books on witchcraft. There's probably a whole host of reasons. Um, this also was inspired by a discussion on uh, Discord the other day. But yeah, I don't know what you guys think about that in the armchair, whether you've experienced that or, or if you can relate to it in that way. I think it's important to point out that there's going to be periods of 
quote unquote armchair occultism um, in every practice. And I find it happens more at the beginning um, or during big shifts in interest. Um, so when I first began looking into like Anaki magic and also alchemy, like for a while, there was quite a long time of where I was just like reading and trying to get the information and understand kind of the the language of those practices, um, literally and figuratively. <laughs> but it's it shouldn't continue forever. Um, and I think once you there, there comes a point where you need to just jump in and you're not always going to feel ready. I sure as hell didn't. Um, when I did my first ritual, that was I look back at that and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't believe like I did that. Um, but it was the first one and I did it and it kind of was the start of everything. A lot of people are afraid of what can happen if you dive in without knowing everything. And it's it's just one of those things where experience is so important and you can't you cannot replace experience with with knowledge, with book knowledge. It's not, it's just not possible. I think, for instance, I, I feel relatively comfortable sharing this, but um Mars, for instance, I work with the planet Mars quite frequently in my practice, and a lot of people associate with Mars with um, very, like, aggressive energy um, because he was the god of war and all of these things. But Mars was also, was also a god of agriculture, and it's actually that energy that I, like, Mars to me is someone who, if prodded, certainly he will, def- like, it will defend whatever we need to at the time, but it's also a planet about maintaining your boundaries and doing it in such a way that you enhance your own growth, which to me more fits the agricultural kind of aspect of Mars than it does the warlike aspect of Mars. And that's a very personal gnosis that I have gained through meditations and and just like workings with the planet and the associated divine being. And that's, so that's again, something where like knowledge would tell you one thing, but experience has express something else entirely something that's actually become much more important to me than what mars is actually known for so it is so important to do the experience knowledge is only half of the puzzle right yeah it's it's kind of like my issue with people on some discords um not to add anybody (laughs) but when when they you know are like you must have two years of experience before you work with deities for example i just you're not gonna learn anything necessarily just by like, what are you doing in those in that two year time frame? You know, when I when I was a beginner practitioner, I very much I have had like a Tumblr grimoire and I would just like spend all my day like reblogging spells. But like, did I actually do anything? No. And it wasn't until I started doing it that I realized that I didn't connect with that form of witchcraft. And then when I started working or looking at deities more and just sort of decided to jump in, that's when I really you know, came to Hellenism and actually changed my path. And I had wished that I had worked with deities sooner. So I think a lot of people think ah, they just like fear monger to beginner occultists. And really, like, you're not going to learn what not to do until you make, you know, that mistake. I mean, there's, you know, if you're, you're definitely people shouldn't jump in and start doing like demon blood magic. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's... I, I think people get kind of caught up in this idea of certain things being advanced and then not realizing that there's more to it than that or or that people can have different experiences, you know? Yeah, I, I don't even mind sharing, but I tried to do a ritual yesterday and it was a new one and it didn't go well. <laughs> nothing happened. Uh, I called on these entities and I got nothing. <laughs> I tried to do divination and the reading was like, this makes no sense. So yeah, 
but I'm glad that happened because it meant that I can look into lots of things that I need to learn now and I'm like okay here are some reasons it went wrong and I wouldn't have known that if I had only read about the things in a book so yeah <laughs> super relevant it's okay when things go wrong I think the armchair thing is, is really interesting for me and I think definitely it's, it's worth pointing out that there should be a balance between the two because I came from the opposite way around where I came into Hellenism and I learned how to worship and I was reading all these myths and stories and I was just worshipping and doing all this deity work <laughs> and like really early on without really knowing that the occult was really a thing without knowing about occult books and communities I was kind of purely in classical texts so I had no idea that all these things were considered kind of dangerous and difficult, but it has very much expanded my practice to um, to read more and discuss more. Um, I just think it's funny that people fear the experiential when really the experiential has a lot to teach you and you can't have one without the other, I don't think. I think it's you have to learn from other people at some point and um, you have to learn from what came before you, but that you, know, you shouldn't discount your your own feelings and your own experiences because they are so integral to your practice. It's one of those things where, and this is what I tell people when we talk about things like deity work or, or what would be considered, you know, more dangerous practices. Um, as long as you have done the appropriate research that you are well-informed going into what you intend to do, then go for it. Like it's, if you've done your research on a deity or like say when I work with demons and you've done your research on, on demons and you understand kind of the process of contacting them, like, you looked in, into Salamic magic and that's how you intend to do it um, and all of these things and you've, you've prepared yourself, then do it. I'm not one to tell you not to do it, um, but that's the thing. And you you will be the person who knows when you are ready and nobody else should really have any say in that. Um, and so when, when people do this whole fear mongering thing of you should wait until two years into your practice, whatever, like that's not true. Um, you know when you're ready and so let yourself be your guide. You have intuition for a reason. Listen to it your own intuition will guide you. Okay, so let's go ahead and move into um, our last topic, which is the transmission and evolution of knowledge. So um, the evolution of like fam family traditions, oral traditions, cultural norms, how all of that has evolved over time. I'll start, I guess. <laughs> Written word is merely one format of sharing knowledge, but enshrining the ideas in physical format does make them more permanent, tangible, and arguably less fluid. And this is actually one of the reasons why um, I think many traditions began to write things down because we, we've been losing important information from traditions for many, many years. And I recently was talking to a friend about this, but Sanskrit is, an, is a good example of this because it's been considered the language of nature because the phonetics are said to come from the vibrations of nature itself. And I find that to be incredibly beautiful. And that kind of energetic importance in terms of speaking the language is nearly impossible. Actually, I would argue it is impossible to translate into a written language. And so when it comes to then learning Sanskrit as a written language, you, you, you kind of lose the essence of the beauty of the speaking of that phonetic importance that was so crucial in the original language. And I think that's really a shame, which is why I kind of wish we did both oral and written traditions and we kept both because they I think they have equal value even like Egyptians and you look at like hieroglyphs right a lot of that imagery we we don't necessarily have all the information to fully translate and understand that language anymore and it's really unfortunate because if I could go back and learn like hieroglyphics you bet I would understand some of the ancient like texts that I have looked at yeah I find that I find it really interesting so I'm a Gallic polytheist um the pre-Christian 
uh, Gales and the Celts did not write things down. They were notoriously bad for it. <laughs> um, they, uh, I think I read recently that they weren't, that certainly the Druidic classes, i.e. The, the lore keepers, if you will, were not actually illiterate for the most part, but there was a real holding on to purely oral traditions. And there's a lot of theories about why this was. A lot of people believe that the Celts regarded their lore and wisdom as really sacred, and writing that down would almost degrade the sacred nature of it. There's also the theory that they, they didn't want to make it accessible to outsiders who might uh, degrade or incorrectly use their knowledge. Um, they didn't want their oral memory to be threatened as well. Um, there's there's a lot of really useful things you can get from oral tradition. Um, I think that change and that fluidity that we discussed earlier. Storytelling as well is really embedded in a lot of these cultures. Um, and there is a fluidity to storytelling. And I think if you've ever heard a professional storyteller, then, then you can really experience a, a really distinct magic that um, <clears throat> that doesn't come from reading about it. And actually no modern storytellers who refuse to have their stories recorded or written down as they're telling them because, you know, might take some of the magic out of it. Um, but in a more secular way, I think um, a lot of people wouldn't maybe put it that way. So, yeah, there's there's definite value to oral traditions and ways of looking at written work. But there are a lot of drawbacks to, as experienced with the Celts and the Gallic polytheists like myself, because um, we have to rely a lot on uh, what the Romans wrote about them, which which has its which has its issues. I think I don't know if you guys want to talk a bit more about that. I mean, I don't I don't know too much about Gallic or Celtic uh, polytheism. It's interesting too because a lot of the early historians on the Greek religion were Roman, so you get some really interesting accounts. <laughs> where they're very unclear or just straight up wrong about something and you're like okay is this right or they conflict each other but something that I was thinking about as we were sort of talking about mystery traditions and initiation and then also oral traditions is there are certain things like for example the Eleusinian mysteries like we think of as like Attica and Athens as being like really really well documented by both the Romans and by themselves However, the Eleusinian mysteries, they weren't just some like small, tiny little cultic thing. They were so much at the heart of Athenian culture and well, Hellenic culture in general. And we know like nothing, <laughs> like what happens, like we know a bit about the procession. But once they get inside that temple of the two goddesses, Demeter and Kore, we literally don't know anything that happens, which is just insane to me because they happened for like hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> they weren't just like a few years or a few hundred years. They were hundreds and hundreds of years of these mysteries. And they managed to keep them secret because they were only done orally. And to talk about them was literally pain of death. But they they influenced so much of that culture. And, and so I think it's interesting. And in some ways, part of me, you know, the curious person in me really wants, wants to know what happened. But I think as modern day occultists, we have to sort of look at a lot of we have to look at what we're given. And, you know, again, I think that's where personal gnosis can come into play. If that makes any sense at all. <laughs> of like, yeah, of filling in, filling in the gaps in a way in how these entities and deities show themselves to us now. And I think we can maybe draw this back to the realism versus relativism debate. So um, 
traditions are going to evolve over time that's natural especially with oral traditions where things are passed down and you don't have something enshrined in a book um, and I think some people take issue with that because they think that there's one singular truth the singular realist representation of say a deity whereas a relativist um, might think that the cultural norms influence are um, perception of deities, divinity of different traditions. And I, I kind of am of the opinion that if our culture is not static, then why should a tradition be? Why can't we learn more about divinity? Why can't we learn more about magic as time goes on? So I, that, I kind of fall into that latter camp. And I think oral traditions are a really great example of this, that yes, there is bias. There are always, there's always going to be bias, but it can actually add, not detract from um, our experience. Yeah, um, that kind of links to something I was reading about recently where there's this critique of a lot of contemporary folklorists. Um, particularly, I'm thinking in the camp of um, people who, kind of early anthropologists, sort of 19th, 20th century, um, who went out and tried to document fairy folklore and traditions from Scotland. But the critique of them was that if you write it down, then then, then it becomes the, the truth and then it becomes static and, and it's still and that's that's the way it's done. But a lot of people would say, no, it's, that's never been how it's worked. These are always changed and it'll change depending on which town you go to, which street you go to, which family you talk to. So um, I think that's, yeah, quite an interesting link to that, that contemporary critique. Um, on the other hand, I'm really glad that the folklorists did go out and write stuff down because I think otherwise it would be really hard, for instance, to preserve some traditions that are dying out now. And it would also be really hard for me to learn about some cool, interesting seining practices, for instance, um, or some specific charms that otherwise I wouldn't have inherited through a purely oral tradition because they don't come this far south in Scotland, just as an example. I think it's really important to remember also with the trans like the transmission of knowledge throughout time is that when when a lot of people write these traditions down and if they're not from that particular tradition, we're getting a, a skewed view of what's actually happening there, right? And so when you do read something like that, it's important to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And this is why I always encourage people that if possible, go talk to people from specific traditions and practices and see what they have to say and get their perspective because in a way, you could argue that they are living a more authentic, I say this, but it might not necessarily be true. Um, you could argue that they're living a more authentic version of their tradition than you might find written down in a book. Um, and so it's important to do both sides of the research, talk to the people living the tradition and also read what was written. It's also one of those things where we tell people a lot of times to go back and read um, older books by some problematic individuals, um, but it's because they have good information, but that doesn't discount the, the information that they've written down. It would just simply helps inform our practices now, and then we can kind of remove the things that don't serve anybody anymore and simply take what is still relevant and fits within the practice. So when you are reading and researching, just keep those kind of things in your mind. Think about who wrote this information, what kind of biases they might have had, were they connected to the tradition, were they not connected to the tradition? And don't be afraid. I see this a lot in cold circles when people say, well, oh, you shouldn't go read X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, I disagree with that. I think you should, I think we should read problematic authors. Just keep in mind their background and make sure that you're not taking anything from that that is problematic. All right. Kind of just last thoughts. Let's wrap it up. Yeah, hopefully we've demonstrated to you that science isn't the only way to know things, although obviously, as hosted this podcast, we love science, and um, it's not the most valid way to understand things. It's just a paradigm that produces material knowledge that's logically consistent within its own system. 
It's first and foremost a method that we can understand the world, but there are so many other interesting methods that we can use. And um, hopefully you've learned a little bit about these from Ruby, who has been really fascinating to talk to. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, science is really cool. But do you know what is also cool is going out and just experiencing some wacky nonsense and then going, yep, this is my reality. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to like diminish qualitative research. It's far more serious and complicated than that. Um, but yeah, th there's multiple ways of knowing things and there isn't just one way of understanding reality. And it isn't, and science is useful for some things, but not always useful for magical, weird, fluid, occult stuff. So yeah, I hope I've sold it, you on it. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me again. This this has been really fun, really exciting to participate in, in the podcast. Yeah, we were so happy to have you on. It's really good to get a to get like another perspective. That's maybe not a scientist, but I think it's really easy, at least for me, to like narrow-mindedly focus on the science and attempting to like prove the occult when we all know that's not entirely possible so yeah it's been lovely to hear your opinions all right if no one has anything else we can close it up thank you so much ruby for joining us for this episode and thank you so much everybody for listening hopefully you've enjoyed our discussion on epistemology and um, initiation and what knowing entails and if that's the case we're going to close it off and we'll see you next week have a great day everybody mm -hmm.